Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, this is Aaron Weinacht with the uh, Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network. And I'm here uh, once again with uh, Dr. Don Ostrowski, uh, who's going to talk about a, a brand new book of his that's called Russia in the Early Modern World. So thanks for being on with us, Don. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, I was looking very much looking forward to reading this book, and hopefully uh, uh, listeners will enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, so I, your subtitle is the, the continuity of change. And I was wondering if you could hold forth a bit on what you mean by that, since that kind of gets you into the main thesis of the book, I think. Yes. The, um, the, <clears throat> the as, as I mentioned, <laughs> I, I, I like the quotation so much. I wound up mentioning it twice in the book, um, you can teach a parrot to be a historian by teaching it to say continuity and change. (laughs) uh, The point is that uh, I, I, the, the, the book is a result of my being irritated. Uh, And I think a number, number of people write books and articles because they're irritated about something. And what irritated me was, the um, historians who claimed all sorts of things for Peter the First, Peter the Great, and never really supporting it, never really doing a comparison, just taking it as given, um, and either in terms of that he changed everything, or uh, and or he sp- he sped up the pace of change. Uh, in, in in Russia. And I came to Peter not so much from 19th and 20th century, going back to the 18th, but from 15th and 16th century, going up through the 17th. And what I was seeing in Peter's reign was a whole lot of continuity. Um, and But when I would read historians writing about Peter, it, the 
the tendency was to treat the pre-Petrine period as one of stagnation, uh, superstition, uh, not not much change, and and going from the reigns of Ivan the Third to Vasily the Third to Ivan the Fourth and through the, the 17th century Romanovs, I was seeing a lot of change in in, uh, uh, in, in that they were introducing and that was occurring uh, in uh, in Russia, and I was also seeing. Um, a lot of change after Peter that the tendency again in the historiography was to claim that Peter was responsible for that change that uh, his successors uh, brought about. So it was this interplay of continuity and change um, and the, the, the fact that ch- in in early modern Russia, change was uh, uh, the continuity. Change was continuously going on, and and that's why the uh, the subtitle, the continuity of change. Do uh, I was thinking about you? You laid out a number of different uh, schools of thought on uh, interpreting Peter's reign. Uh, which I was wondering if you could talk about here in a second, but it occurs to me, uh, given what you just said, that is if if most of what you saw is like historians of 19th and 20th century Russia looking back on Peter's reign as this kind of great break, um, is that just kind of a... that proceeds from a kind of residual Whiggishness there that we're things had to turn out the way they did and Peter it kind of superficially looks like the beginning of it. Is that, is that why lots of historians have tended to focus on him or how do you think historians of those periods came to that conclusion? That's, that's a good question. Um, I tended to lay some of the blame on Strabatov uh, because uh, he was very much opposed to uh, the reign of Catherine II, to Catherine II personally, and was looking as to, toward the reign of Peter as that that's the way it should be done. <laughs> and Catherine is doing it the wrong way. Uh, but I don't think it was, oh, it was entirely Shabatov's fault. Uh, but uh, then you have Chidayev in, in the early 19th century says, you know, at one time there was a great man who threw us the cloak of civilization, but we rejected it. And and that great man was Peter. So there, there was this tendency to use Peter as an ideal monarch by later historians and philosophers and political commentators to criticize their own time. Uh, now, I, I think an entire book could be written about how that occurred. Uh, it, it certainly has occurred in, in other places, other times, in other countries. Uh, and and I think that was part of my irritation is that I, I, I was looking for the evidence. I, what is the evidence here? Uh, 
and I and I wasn't finding it. Uh, and the arguments were not when there were arguments, they were rather specious. Um, otherwise, it was just taken as a given. And and we see this, you know, for example, in um, American colleges and universities where, uh, for the most part, the tendency is to take Peter's reign <laughs> as uh, the, the beginning of the new semester. We'll start with Peter the first. And, uh, and well, they, I think, are missing out uh, on a great deal. I teach a, a course in history of Russian culture. And Russian culture is very rich, but if you just start with Peter's reign, you're you're missing out on a whole lot. Now, to be sure, subsequent to Peter, uh, much of the culture becomes something that is a little more familiar to us, somewhat like Renaissance writings and art are something that more familiar to us than medieval writing and art. You have to, it's, it's, it's a little challenging for students to, uh, to, you know, when they're introduced to the medieval writing and art. To, uh, uh, but, but once it's explained and they say, oh yeah, now I see it. Um, whereas Renaissance writing and art doesn't really have to be explained very much. We're in post-Renaissance period and, so you know it's a post-Petrine period, and people feel well. It doesn't doesn't need an explanation. Yeah, I um, I was trying to decide now if uh, I divide my two Russian history classes in 1881, uh, and I'm trying to decide if that's uh, uh, better or worse. <laughs> well, it's different. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anybody else who does that, but you know what? I had the freedom to do it, so I did it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think whatever makes you feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so that said, um, one of your first sections here is is on the uh, the, the the question of the the Russia as an empire. So I thought maybe you could start off by talking about that. Like, how is the how's the Russian empire growing and changing long before Peter? And then of course, continuing to do so uh, during and after his reign. Yeah. And that, that, that ties in with the other aspect. I've been teaching world history now for 30 years and there, there's a disconnect between world history and Russian history. Uh, in, in terms of the historiography. Uh, not in terms of the evidence, interestingly. So the I teach a course, uh, The Age of Empires, 1500 to 1800, roughly the early modern period. And Russia fits very neatly <laughs> into the Age of Empires. Uh, it depends to a certain extent on what one means by empire. And I think the working definition I have uh, is when you have uh, an ethnic group at the top that rules other ethnic groups. Uh, so a nation state would be 
one ethnic group, pretty much, you know. Um, but the an empire involves some kind of uh, dominant ethnic group and subdominant uh, ethnic groups, and I and Russia already had that. They, they I mean, even, uh, even before the expansion into Siberia. Uh, in the 16th century, uh, the expansion down the Volga brought in all sorts of Tatar uh, groups. The expansion northward to the White Sea brought in uh, uh, Finnish groups, uh, Baltic groups. There, so there, there were uh, Russia <laughs> throughout this period. Uh, it, it it may be kind of um, odd to say so, but Russia w- was very much a melting pot uh, as it, Russia was acquiring these other ethnic groups. The Russian state government was acquiring these uh, other ethnic groups. At, at in terms of elite families trying to figure some way to incorporate the elite families of these other groups like the Ukrainians into their own uh, system, uh, but also to incorporate uh, Tatars, uh, Finns, uh, people, people of uh, Baltic ancestry into their structure, their social structure. And because they didn't have a uh, uh, <clears throat> a Bureau of uh, Naturalization, the, uh, the way to determine whether someone was a Russian or not uh, was whether they uh, were Russian Orthodox. If they if they accepted the the, the the primacy of the metropolitan of Moscow and then the patriarch, and often had to go through a, a, a process of catechization, then they w- were considered Russian, even if their language uh, was uh, not exactly fluent. They weren't speaking fluent Russian. Their ancestry wasn't Russian uh, in the sense that we would understand that their genetic makeup wasn't Russian. But as long as they were Russian Orthodox, practitioners of Russian Orthodoxy, then that became the marker. Uh, and and we see this in the, in the 17th century where mercenaries were brought into by, by the, the czar uh, to serve the czar mercenaries from Europe. Uh, but there was a distinction, you know, not always followed, but for the most part followed that they could only be given land for their service as a reward for their service if they converted. And there was a lot of pressure put on a number of these European mercenaries to convert to Russian Orthodoxy. Uh, and one of the rewards was they would receive land. Uh, so the uh, so empire is is a it's a it's a fluid concept 
But when one looks at other empires of the time, from the 16th through the 18th century, Russia is an, a, a very nice fit. So, yeah, I think I think it was an empire. So does um, I guess you know in a lot of literature on Peter, um, you know his reign is seen as expanding the empire. You've got um, you know the cross and the bearing and so on. Um, so you're you're seeing that you know not so much as a break really, but just as a continuation uh, more or less of the the imperial expansion that's gone before. Yes, and I have a. Um... An, anal- an analysis in the book about the amount of territory. Yes, I agree that the, the prevailing view is that Peter expanded the empire. And yes, some, some land was acquired, uh, but also some was given up. So I, I decided, well, let's do a comparison. Uh, how, much, how much land did Russia, and now I'm including Muscovy as Russia, uh, acquire before Peter and how much land did it acquire after Peter? And let's compare that with how much land Peter acquired. And Peter comes off on the low end (laughs) in terms of land acquisition, territorial acquisition. Uh, On average, we're talking uh, per year average land acquisition. It was greater before Peter and greater after Peter. Oh, So on that uh, kind of continuing on here a little bit, um, in one of your your following chapters after the the one on the the empire, you talk quite a bit about the importance of marriage politics in the, the aristocracy, um, and uh, I was wondering if you could talk about that uh, some more uh, as uh, as well as a is a continuous phenomenon that passes through Peter's reign and, and onwards. Yes. The, you know, um, I'm picking up on a lot, on a lot of work that Russ Martin did on marriage politics at, at the court. And, and Russ, you know, is very generous in his praise of Ned Keenan for heading him in, in that direction as I am too. And it, it really does, I think, help to explain the the evidence that we're seeing that these elite families uh, uh, at at court and those even those not at court, there was a delicate balance. Um, and when the czar, the ruler, married someone. The, you know, in traditional countries, they marry someone, or traditional European countries, let's say, they, the, the ruler marries someone from another ruling house. Uh, you get a lot of intermarriage that way, and it helps leg- legitimize their own, their own rule. In Russia, because of the re- religious issue, this creates a problem because they do not want their daughters, uh, the ruler doesn't want his daughter converting to Catholicism or Protestantism or Islam. But uh, so, but the uh, the last attempt 
was the marriage with the Lithuanian grand prince. Uh, and the idea was he would allow uh, the uh, Ivan III's daughter to uh, remain Russian Orthodox, but and and that he would abide by certain ceremonies of of of, of, the, of the wedding ceremony, which he didn't do, and there was pressure put on her to convert, uh, and that kind that was 1497, and that kind of ended the foreign marriage. Uh, uh, practice for uh, pretty much 200 years. So then that, well, who then should the ruler or the the heir to the throne, well, who should that person marry? Well, they had to marry down into the aristocracy, into the Russian aristocracy. Uh, but if they married someone of the high nobility uh, of the of the ruling elite, then that upset the balance because then that family had much more power than they did before and could dominate uh, fam- the family politics. Uh, in, in in the state. So the idea was to marry someone from the lower uh, uh, ruling class, someone whose family did not have much status, but the, but and that would raise their status, but it had to be done very carefully because it had to have the approval of the upper uh, ruling class families to allow this family from the lower ruling class to gain in status. Uh, and it's not just Russia that had that problem. We, we see it in uh, England when, when Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn and the Boleyns rise in status. There's a huge opposition because apparently Henry hadn't cleared it. <laughs> with the, he, he had just fallen for Anne and uh, said, I'm going to marry her. And, and this created a lot of antagonism. So the, the, and, and, the, and the result was she got beheaded. Um, so in Russia, there was, there was an attempt to maintain political stability. That, that seems pretty clear. Uh, and by choosing the right person, now there, there, there would be certain, as Russ Martin pointed out, there would be certain candidates who the czar could Choose. This was a so-called bride show, uh, uh, but they were limited, and they had already been vetted, uh, you know, for their uh, physical health, uh, so that they could produce uh, an heir, but also for their political acceptability. Uh, and the the system worked pretty well. There there were some shenanigans going on. Russ talks about that in his book. Uh, but it, it, it worked pretty well. Uh, it, at least it got the, the uh, got Russia through the 16th and 17th centuries. Now, uh, recently, Paul Bushkovich has written a book on succession in Russia. And when I first got wind of the book and started to read it, I, I was wondering, well, why is he writing this book? 
you know, succession is succession, right? Well, it turns out there was something that irritated him <laughs> uh, about the way historians were approaching the whole succession issue. And when I got into the book a bit more, I realized he was right. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the tendency has been to think in terms of, well, the, uh, before, before the, the 15th century, succession was in Rus, in the Rus principalities, was collateral, uh, which meant that when a ruler died, his eldest brother would succeed him down to the fourth brother, if they got that far. Then when the fourth brother died, the eldest son of the eldest brother who had ruled would then succeed. Uh, then they would go through all the sons of the eldest brother, and when the, the last of those or the fourth one of those died, then they would go to the eldest son of the second brother. So it it, it, it was a system that worked well when people died early, when, when men died early, or either in combat or disease or whatever. But as uh, either there was fewer men died in combat or people got healthier, there tended to be a lot of potential rulers in line uh, for succession. Uh, now, the, 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 the Black Death tended to weed that out in, in the Muscovite ruling family in the 14th century. But then in the early 15th century, you come down to a situation where uh, you have the son of the previous ruler. So Vasily II uh, claims the throne, but his uncle, that is the younger brother of his, his father, also claims the throne. Yuri, the, the uncle, claims it on the basis of collateral succession. Uh, Vasily doesn't doesn't exactly have uh, a direct claim, uh, except that his grandfather had said in a document that Vasily should should uh, uh, or Yuri should succeed Vasily the first, uh, and but then Vasily the second was born and said, well, I should succeed because. The previous rulers, some of the previous rulers of Muscovy, there had been a father-to-son succession, but that was because there was no uncle, <laughs> because Black Death had wiped them out. So historians said, "Okay, well, this is the the dichotomy here is between collateral succession and uh, uh, you know the the." Uh, Patronymic, where the, the son succeeds the father. So they started to look at succession this that way. Uh, and But there wasn't really a justification for that in our sources, that 
the son should succeed the father. Now, Vasily II appoints his son, Ivan III, Kozar, and Ivan III appoints his son, Vasily III, Kozar. But Vasily III doesn't appoint his son, Ivan IV, Kozar, because Ivan IV is only three years old. Uh, but they, they kind of overlook that. Uh, and and when we when uh, the son of Ivan the Fourth dies, Yoder uh, dies, then someone who is not a Ruri kid is chosen or is good enough. Well, how does that happen in a country that's supposed to be uh, a dynastic monarchy where the dynasty, you know, the the if if the if the son of the ruler dies, then you you find a relative who is a Rurikid to succeed. But they didn't. They found Boris Goodenough, they chose Boris Goodenough, who was not in any by any means a Rurikid. Uh, the uh, but they justified it on the basis, or at least the patriarch justified it on the basis that uh, Fyodor had no sons. Uh, which was rather tenuous, a rather tenuous uh, justification, because other, you know, as, as we see later in Russian history, when a ruler doesn't have a son, then they choose someone who's a close, close relative. Uh, they, so something else was going on here. <laughs> uh, it wasn't patrilinear. Uh, succession. It was, I think, the ruling families. Ruling families were determining who the successor should be in the same way that they were determining who the bride of the czar should be. Uh, the czar had some choice within that, but there were only a few acceptable candidates. So the point is that the continuity throughout the 15th through 18th century is ruling families determining the, the, these essential issues. Uh, who who the, the ruler should marry uh, and or future ruler uh, and who... Um, was the uh, successor, uh, and, and and until 1797, when under Paul, a law of succession is passed that makes it patrilinear: the eldest son shall succeed the father. So, so there's um, so you're clearly not seeing any significant deviation from that. Uh, practice uh, in in Peter's reign than the uh, the kind of dominance of the, the prominent clan families not at all and in, in, in fact Peter you know the uh, when he issues his law of succession um, in, in a way it's just reverting to what Vasily II did uh, and Ivan the third did which was I I will designate my successor uh, now they raise that person to Kozar uh, status. 
and as we know, Peter did not designate his successor. And then there's a, a, a kind of uh, the, the history of designation by subsequent rulers is very spotty. Um, the, the choice of Peter's wife, Catherine I, well, who made that decision? It wasn't Peter. But yet the law was the ruler designates the successor. Uh, Elizabeth comes to the throne through a coup. <laughs> she was not designated by her predecessor, palace coup. Uh, but she does designate Peter III, but then Catherine II comes to, to the throne through another palace coup. And there is an attempt, a kind of post facto attempt, to get Peter, uh, after he's already overthrown, to say, oh, yes, I choose Catherine. But that, that was clearly under uh, duress. And then when uh, Catherine II was uh, nearing the, the, her end, uh, she really didn't like her son, Paul, and was seriously considering designating Alexander, uh, her grandson. Um, she didn't do that and uh, allowed Paul to succeed. But as we know, he, he was overthrown, again, internally. Uh, and each of these successions in the 18th century, I think it was felt was created instability uh, within the succession process, that the, the uh, process that seemed to be working fairly well in the 16th and 17th century, with the possible exception of 1682, <laughs> when uh, Peter and Yvonne uh, are chosen, Yvonne V, uh, that it was felt that the ruling families were no longer uh, capable of maintaining that stability. So they needed to designate it in uh, a, a, a legal document so that they knew who the successor would be and in what order. So if the czar didn't have a son, who was next? Uh, who would be in the line of succession? As, as we see with the, the you know, present-day English monarchy, they, they, they have... I think Princess Anne is something like 17th in line for succession, something like that. Uh, so they have it all designated. So there's complete stability and they don't have to decide. Now, one may ask, as I did, well, why then were there so many son, eldest son to, to father successions, or in the case of Catherine II, eldest son to mother succession? And the answer is that usually that is the most stable line of succession. In other words, it's not patrilinear, patrilineal. Uh, as a principle, uh, it, it's acceptable as a uh, because it makes is the least destabilizing to the regime. Uh, to the continuity uh, of the, there's not a reshuffling 
of the deck uh, of, of in, in terms of the uh, elite families and, and their, their power structure. But they reserve the right to change that. They reserve the right to um, decide who the ruler should be, but they needed a mechanism for that. And that's where the Zemsky Sobor comes in, uh, which both served to confirm a decision that was already made by the ruling families, but also could act as a referee if there was a dispute among the ruling families as to who the successor would be. Uh, so the when Peter's law of succession came in, when he issued that, uh, it's clear he wanted to replace the Zemsky Sobor as that mechanism for determining or deciding who, who the successor should be, in part because it had been so disruptive in 1682 uh, when he, at first he, uh, and then he and his half-brother uh, were chosen and there were fatalities <laughs> uh, in, in, in the process. Uh, riot, the, the Kremlin was stormed and, and all of that. Uh, and Peter was old, old enough to remember that he was 10 years old at the time. He re- remembered that. And uh, uh, the, so there, there was, I think, a, a continued attempt to find some process to legitimize the decisions that the elite ruling families were making as well, not and uh, through the uh, uh, the Boyer Duma, uh, but also through the Holy Synod, uh, the, the prelates, church prelates. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's shipstation.com with the code POD. Uh, so if uh, uh, the, uh, the marriage politics, the importance of marriage politics remains pretty, pretty continuous, um, 
maybe we should press on to another subject or two here. Uh, you've got a, uh, some interesting material in the book on military change uh, as, as well. I was, uh, I was all, I was in particular, I was kind of struck by your argument that it's not that, uh, you know, gunpowder weapons were somehow backwards in Russia. It's that they actually weren't all that advanced in Western Europe, uh, uh, which I thought was a, it was, uh, it was nicely done. So what's, uh, what's, what's some of the evidence then that shows that military change doesn't happen uh, significantly differently during Peter's reign than it did before. Um, <clears throat> well, the, the evidence is that the much of the so-called modernization of the military occurred under uh, his father Alexei. Uh, and, you know, there's plenty of evidence for that, and it and it. It goes back to Alexei's father, uh, Michael, uh, where the, uh, the the attempt was to Europeanize the the Russian military. Up to that point, the, the Russian army fought like a step army, uh, very mobile uh, horse archers. Why? Because they were fighting step armies. The, uh, you know, the, the Tatar armies, and it, it, it was rather effective. But as Muscovy was expanding, it was coming in contact with European-style armies, and the decision was made in the 1670s, 1680s to... Uh, become more European uh, in, in terms of uh, weaponry, the uh, reliance on, more reliance on infantry, infantry uh, the wagon train to supply the, uh, the military needs uh, of the troops as they moved. So you could cook food, you brought the food with you and cooked it uh, uh, for them uh, as, as they were on expedition. This did not work so well uh, when Galitsyn led two expeditions in the 1680s against the Crimean Tatars uh, because a European-style uh, army does not do well in a steppe situation. <laughs> uh, the uh, the the Crimean Tatars just used the methods at their disposal, which was uh, a scorched earth policy. They befouled the water. So the, the horses of uh, Galitsyn's army were uh, didn't didn't have enough fodder from from grass because it was all burned. Uh, they couldn't drink the water because it was toxic. Uh, and, you know, this is, we have the direct reports of, of the time on this, and both expeditions failed. Uh, but he comes back, and Sophia, who's regent, <laughs> awards him, gives him medals and so forth, for his successful uh, campaigns. And uh, 
so I think what the the result is that historians look at this and say, oh, well, you know, that was a Muscovite army. Well, it wasn't. It was a European type army. <laughs> but the thinking is, oh, well, that was a Muscovite type army. Uh, it failed. Therefore, when Peter came in, he had to modernize it. I, and no, it was already modernized in, in the same sense that Charles Twelfth inherited the reforms of his father, Charles XI, militarily. <laughs> and and I might say that Alexander the Great inherited the military reforms of his father, Philip. So too, Peter inherited the military reforms of his father, Alexei. Russia was well on the way to uh, the uh, Europeanizing its army by the time Peter came to the assume power. Uh, he does make an important innovation, and that's the dragoons, because he was fighting, and, and the dragoons were specific for fighting the Swedes, because the Swedes had a large dragoon presence. Uh, and the, the advantage of the dragoons is that they were mobile, uh, and they were, but they were not heavy cavalry. Uh, so the, 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 they were called Peter's Flying Corps, and they they proved uh, decisive, I think, in the events leading up to the Battle of Poltava in seventeen twenty one, and the the defeat of Charles the Twelfth at Poltava. Uh, but then, after the Swedes are defeated and the, uh, the end of the Great Northern War, the dragoons are pretty much abandoned in, in the Russian army. So this, this innovation that Peter was responsible for um, pretty much ends with Peter. <laughs> it was successful, very successful, but then it pretty much ended. Huh, I didn't. I did not know that. Why, do, you, do you have any sense of why that was? Well, there, there was no need. No need for well, uh, being a dragoon was considered low status, <laughs> for one thing. Um, but there, were, there was really no need in in the subsequent wars. There were there there were some dragoon regiments, but nowhere near the numbers. That they were uh, under Peter, it, it's it's somewhat similar to the Russian Navy. You know, Peter, the founder of the Russian Navy, except and and to his credit, yes, he he, he did wonderful things and defeated the Swedes at Hongo and Battle of Hongo and so forth. Uh, had, had defeated the Turks. <laughs> uh, at, uh, at uh, Azov, but also <laughs> lost what he had gained uh, subsequently. In, in, but the uh, but after after Peter died, the the navy was pretty much allowed to deteriorate. There was no no real incentive to continue to support the navy. So by oh within 10, 15 years of uh, Peter's death. There, there was no Russian Navy to speak of. Uh, and it was Catherine II who revived it. 
<laughs> uh, but she rarely gets credit for that. She's not called the mother of the Russian Navy. <laughs> no, if she has, I've I've never heard anyone say that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, on you've got a whole chapter in here on uh, on economic matters too, which I, I have to say I was. Uh, um, I was, I was, uh, I laughed with, with your opening quotation from Grimmel's house in there. Simply Cecimus has got to be one of the funniest books ever written. So, uh, that's, I very much enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a great book it, for, for those who haven't read it. I recommend it highly. Yeah, I still, I think my, my favorite line from the whole book is actually close to the beginning where he's, uh, he's talking about how when he was a kid, his windows were christened to St. No Glass. Uh, that's a, that's a, what a great joke. Yeah. So, uh, um, so on economic matters here, it uh, looks like you've, you know, you've contended that basically Russia was part of this, you know, uh, economic network all over Europe long before, uh, long before Peter and so on. Uh, so how does, uh, what are some good examples of that Russia being involved in, uh, I'm not sure international might be a bit of an anachronism at that point, but, um, um, you know, what's Russia involved in economically that makes Peter's reign look the way you've portrayed it? Well, a lot, a lot of work has been done on this. Yarmo um, Kaltelein done extensive work on the late 17th century uh, and the, the interconnections between uh, Russia and uh, European merchants. But, you know, also other people, Erica Monaghan has uh, discussed this uh, as well, the bringing in of products from China uh, across Russia in, in, into Europe. Rhubarb, for example, which was a, a, a big deal. The uh, trade in furs was uh, uh, very important. Uh, forest products. So, you know, all of this predates Peter and goes way back to Novgorod, you know, when Novgorod was an independent uh, city-state. So um, the under Peter, yes, there, there was an uh, increase in iron production, uh, to be sure, but this, this was not, this was pig iron, basically, um, which is fine, I mean, but it, it's not high-quality iron. Um, the, uh, but what I was trying, I, I, I spent some time talking about the, uh, you know, the, the uh, Goldstone's theory and how applicable it is to uh, early modern Russia. And Chester Dunning um, has done a, quite a bit of work uh, on looking at, at this question. Um, the and then Turchin and Nefedev picked up on what Goldstone had had done, and what surprised me is that very little has been written in Russian historiography about Turchin and Nefedev. Uh, whether one agrees with them or not, this is this is a rather 
comprehensive attempt to um, categorize Russian economic history into certain cycles. Um, but there's um, the book has has been reviewed by European sociologists, but not by Russian historians or economists, as far as I know. So I I wanted to bring it to the attention of Russianists uh, that this is uh, this is this is a a book that should be uh, at least acknowledged that that it exists uh, uh, and uh, this, this is the book Secular Cycles that they wrote. Uh, I am a bit critical of how they use some of their sources, but I, I didn't want that to be a indication that I didn't like the book or I didn't like their attempt uh, to kind of re rethink things and reconceptualize uh, Russian economic history, which which I did. I like their attempt uh, very much, and and I think you know we we could see more of that kind of attempts at reconceptualization rather than just repeating the traditional narrative, you know, the conventional wisdom uh, that uh, we learned as graduate students. Um, we, I think we really need to rethink a lot of that. Not necessarily to reject it, <laughs> uh, but in the process, we may have to reject portions of the traditional narrative because the, the people who wrote the traditional narrative, and I'm talking now going back to Karamzin and Solovyov and Kluchevsky, Platonov, they all had their own uh, influences on them, uh, contemporary influences on them. They all, they all had, either consciously or subconsciously, a uh, that uh, things that were influencing them in how they were understanding the sources. Now, when we come along later, not to say we don't have our own conscious and subconscious influences, but at least we can determine where they um, could have done better. <laughs> uh, for example, uh, Charles Halpern has an really outstanding article on how Kluchevsky treated the Tatars in his history. He does he just virtually ignores them. Now the Mongols and Tatars, whatever you want to say, the the, the Mongol Tatars had a huge impact on early Rus history. On, on they ruled Rus. <laughs> Let's face it, they ruled Rus. Um, for hundreds of years. This is sometimes referred to as the Tatar yoke, which is a myth, uh, but the, uh, to ignore it. And what is even more astounding is that Kluchevsky was well aware of the Tatars. He grew up in an area where there were many Tatars. He knew the Tatars. He was familiar with them. And then in his history, he 
he hardly mentions them. That is odd. Uh, but since he was a person of his time, it's understandable within that context. But we don't have to make the same mistake. I'm sure all our, uh, our descendants will be happy to tell us which ones we did, in fact, make. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, when, uh, when I, I hear that uh, uh, something is dated, when, when I read that something, oh, that, that move, movie from the 1930s is dated, <laughs> I think, yeah, that's, as a historian, I want dated because that helps me date the movie. That that helps me understand the context of of the time, and future generations will look at us and say that we're dated. Yeah, well. I always tell my history, my students that if you don't learn any humility from history, you haven't learned much at all. So, <laughs> yes. uh, the uh, the kind of the last. I think we got enough time for one more kind of uh, big theme here, and the. The one that uh, that we really haven't got to yet is the relationship between Peter and the church. Um, so I think maybe maybe if you could comment on that a bit, that might be a good place to kind of uh, wrap up a bit. Of course, the whole you know Peter and the church thing. If anybody knows anything really about Peter, maybe other than the beard taxes, it probably has something to do with um, Peter's. Uh, um, Supposed assault on the church, yeah, I suppose. So, what uh, what springs to mind on that subject? Yeah, the I, I again, I think it's it's an attempt by uh, beginning with nineteenth uh, century liberal Russian historians who are secularized and and really don't like the church. They see it as a, a uh, retrogressive influence on society, and they're using Peter as a kind of club <laughs> to say, "See, Peter was opposed to the church." But w- when you look at the evidence, okay, yes, he ended the patriarchate, but he did so with the approval of the church prelates. How did that happen? Oh, he must have browbeat them into. Well, um, I I don't buy the browbeating argument. Instead, um, I look back into the, the, our sources for the 17th century and what the church hierarchy was trying to do. And they had an entire program of prosphistiania, of enlightenment, enlightenment of the population. Why? Because they thought the population was too superstitious, uh, and they wanted to uh, enlighten them on Christian values uh, and and uh, get rid of things like prayers in a hat and this kind of superstition that that was going on. Um, but they were stymied <laughs> in in the the prog- Well, first of all. <laughs> Nikon comes along and tries to impose bully everyone uh, and creates a huge reaction, Patriarch Nikon. And then the subsequent patriarchs seem to be dragging their feet for one reason or another. 
uh, on implementing an enlightenment program. And this is religious enlightenment. Uh, Peter himself was uh, very religious. He, he attended church regularly. Uh, he didn't particularly care if the preacher criticized him or his regime. But otherwise, if the preacher stuck to religious matters, he, he was uh, a, a big supporter of the Orthodox Church. He did not like the fact that um, a lot of monasteries were supporting people who were less than devout as monks, uh, were just there for the free ride, <laughs> as it were. That was recognized within the church. That wasn't something that Peter made up uh, on his own. Uh, so that accounts for his wanting to reform uh, the monasteries. And the the issue, he, he was rather reluctant, as we know, to appoint a new patriarch. And then eventually, uh, uh, one of the prelates writes up this justification for not appointing a new patriarch and for returning the, the governance of the church to what it had been before there was a patriarch, which is the Holy Synod. The Holy Synod would govern the church. Uh, Peter does adjust the composition of the Holy Synod to make it uh, less monopolized by the hierarchy, so it brings in others to bring their opinions. Uh, but the church continued to thrive under Peter, throughout the 18th century, throughout the 19th century, uh, as it is, is well recognized. Greg Fries has written uh, about this, as, as have other historians. So the idea that Peter was opposed to the church or assaulted the church, I think is a late 19th century Russian liberal historian's uh, concept that they they were using for their own reasons during their own their own time so it, it's i'm trying to kind of sum up here a little bit uh it sounds an obvious question to ask at this point is okay so if there's so much evidence against seeing peter as this uh this great break point then how has that idea uh, you know, lasted so long, and it sounds to me like the the conclusion here is that, um, you know, Russian historians in the 19th century seized on that idea for their own reasons, maybe inspired, say, like somebody like Chidayev, and then you know, historians and uh, you know, say in the English speaking world have have picked up on that kind of uncritically, just carried that forward. Is that a kind of an accurate summary? Yes, I, you know, Milyukov is, is one of those individuals, great historian, no question about it, but he did uh, convey, he was one of the ones who conveyed uh, this attitude uh, to the point, it, okay, I'm not against conveying attitudes, but they have to be based on evidence. <laughs> uh 
And if you if you read a statement by a historian and there's no evidence to support it, there's no footnote, there's no argument, you you begin to say, well, okay, what is this based on? And then you read some other historian who says the same thing or something very similar. Again, no evidence, no argument. Well, okay, so you have two historians and then you read a third and a fourth and a fifth. And then you begin to wonder, well, what is the evidence? Is there any evidence? Uh, and you start digging and you find out in many cases, no, there is no evidence. This is just something that's repeated from one historian to another. And, and it's one of the reasons why many history departments <laughs> begin their, they divide Russian history, begin their semester with Peter the first, not you, but uh, because that's just the conventional wisdom. Peter changed everything. He's the continental divide of Russian history. So, of course, you begin with Peter. It does seem like there's a good bit of inertia in operation here. Oh, yeah. You know, and and, uh, world history textbooks do the same thing. You know, you would think that they (laughs) might be better, but uh, they they talk about Ivan the Terrible, you know, and how he uh, wanted to destroy the boyars. And then they jump to Peter the first <laughs> and, and, and if there's any mention of anybody in between, Oh, they're weak czars. And he said, weak. Michael was so, not weak. <laughs> Boris was not weak. All right. Alexei that's, was not. <laughs> that's kind of the 1066 and all that treatment of exactly. Russian history. Right. Yeah. With the, the capital letters, bad King or weak King or whatever. That's, that's right. Uh, so, um, I'm curious now, you know, some books are quite narrowly focused. Others like this one here have pretty broad implications. I mean, that's, and uh, maybe, maybe it's going too far to say you're kind of uh, taking issue with a sacred cow here. I think I may have just mixed my metaphor, but, um, but uh, I mean, to an extent, that's what you're, you're doing. So do you, do you have any sense at this point of how much traction your, your book is getting among, uh, you know, among others in the, in, other Russian historians? Uh, I, I, I will say this. <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, Lexington Books asked me to ask some of my colleagues for blurbs for the book. And, uh, you know, to, and I must say uh, that I, I was very touched and very pleased by the quality of the blurbs that the people I asked provided. I, I, I Russ Martin, Kira Stevens, David Goldfrank, and Erica Monahan. They it, it wasn't just pro forma, you know, oh, this is a great book, everyone should read. I, they it was clear they had read the book or they had read what I had sent them, uh, the, the typescript proof pages at the time because uh you know as 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 an author when one reads a review of one's book one can tell <laughs> one can tell if the reviewer <laughs> read the book <laughs> um, yeah, i'm still i'm still hoping i haven't seen any uh scholarly reviews of my book yet so i'm, I'm hoping they will have read it from in the same way yeah, an excellent book by the way, I, for all of you <laughs> listeners out there, I recommend Aaron's book uh, very, very highly. 
Um, yeah, so the and the um, the people who have contacted me. I let's put it this way: so far, <laughs> uh, I've heard no negative, nothing negative, no negative comments about the book. Yeah, I was just I was curious, you know, because more more so than most books I've talked to people about, this one really kind of. Um, you know, cuts at the at the heart of a pretty long lasting narrative. So I I'll be um, uh, I'll be curious to see what kind of reviews come out over the next uh, over the next little bit. Well, you know the uh, what what I find uh, you probably find this too. And when one is teaching students in a course, one can go to great lengths to show how the prevailing view of something is incorrect. And then on the exam, <laughs> you you get the student presenting <laughs> the, the very uh, view that you had spent so much time knocking down. Um, yeah, yeah, that is uh, unfortunately true. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think there. I I'm I was just glad to get it published because it it you know as as I mentioned I I had started it well. 15, more than 15 years ago. And I intended it to, as a, as a short interpretive essay, a little over a hundred pages, like Marshall Poe's book on, on the Russian moment. And, um, it, it just, I, I think because I, I, I don't know why it went beyond that, but it just did, and it kept growing, and more and more. And I felt I had to cover this and that before I could say this other thing. Um, I got a lot of good feedback uh, along the way, and but it it got to the point where I was thinking, "Is this thing ever going to see the light of day? <laughs> Am I ever going to be done with it?" <laughs> uh, so, uh, fortunately, you know. Lexington Books contacted me and said, do you have a book manuscript? I said, well, yes, I do, but you might not be interested in it. Uh, I sent it, and they said, yeah, well, we're interested in publishing it. Well, I think we should probably uh, wrap it up here at this point. So thanks for the uh, thanks for the chat, Don. I'll be, as I said, I'll be quite curious to see how big of a splash your particular thesis uh, makes uh, overall. So that was, it was a, I think the first Russian history book I ever read was, I was probably 12 and happened to pick up Massey's book on Peter the Great off my dad's bookshelf, which you know, that would be a good example, I think, of the kind of general presentation you're, you're taking some issue with here. So um, I, uh, um, I hope we can have a chat about your next project. <laughs> Oh yes, yeah. Uh, the uh, I I have completed a uh, a book with uh, Chris Raffensperger on ruling families in early Rus uh, up up to uh, Muscovy, and uh, that should be coming out sometime in January. Oh, great! Well, I'll uh, look forward to reading that when it comes out. And I look forward to your interviewing me when it comes out. All right. Well, thank you very much, Don. Thanks, Aaron. 
What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.